I was desperately gutted, gutted as a fishmonger's prized salmon at the time. <laughs> but do you know what? The reason that I describe that as also one of the big, biggest successes of my life is that it taught me at age 20, 21, that you can fail at what you have always thought is going to be your success and you will be fine. Mm. You will be more than fine. I still got a first in my degree because I'd worked so hard and stacked up points elsewhere and I had the time to emotionally heal. It was an amazing lesson really, as frightening and deeply unpleasant as it was at the time. I stand by the idea that that set me up for life. It taught me that everything can fall down and you will still be fine, so long as you have friends and so long as you have some self-belief. Mm. But it also really taught me the value of kindness because I had so many wonderful people around me at that time who were really looking out for my well-being when I wasn't really able to myself. Hello and welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future programme, a platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018 in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break, their successes, failures and inspirations along the way and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. Alex Fox is a multi-award-winning broadcaster, writer and sex educator. Co-host of BBC Radio 1's Unexpected Fluids, an unflinchingly honest comedy show about when sex goes awry, she is also the resident X-rated agony aunt on the Modern Man podcast and presenter of The Guardian's audio documentary series Close Encounters. An ambassador for Brooke Young People's Sexual Health Charity. In addition to this, Alex works as a representative and consultant for Superdrug, One Condoms and Tenga Intimate Toys. She was named Best Sex Expert 2018 by ETO Magazine, is a former Bazaar Magazine editor, has written for the likes of Marie Claire, Cosmo and Stylist Magazine, but not only that, she is also the script advisor on Netflix's hugely popular teen drama Sex Education and was shortlisted for a Woman of the Future Award in 2017. It's an interview with some strong language and adult themes, which was a lot of fun to record. I'm not sure whether I was brought up as a human so much as someone brings something up when they've eaten something bad for them. I think I was vomited <laughs> into this world and I have uh, continued to travel with that kind of speed and ferocity ever since. What do you mean by that? It's quite an unusual terminology or... Oh, I'm only of... kidding really. It, just, <laughs> it honestly does feel like for a lot of my life I've been flying by the seat of my pants and I've always expected that at some point it will become more stable and slow down. And it hasn't, so I have just learnt to embrace that means of travel and reinforce my own gusset. Um, <laughs> but I now live in London. I've been here for 13 years, which is a good place to be if you're somebody who likes that kind of speed and pace. Mm -hmm. um, but I was actually brought up in the majority in an extremely quiet, placid, tranquil, boring <laughs> uh, little village called Timbersbrook so called oh, because nice. yeah there was yeah. a timber mill and a brook there was a lot of nominative determinism going on there 
and not a lot else. It was uh, just outside of, well, Manchester was the biggest, closest city, okay. which was great for somebody like me who had a lot of LGBTQ friends, because mm. obviously Manchester is famous for the gay village and yeah, Canal Street. Yeah, yeah. And that was very influential on me as a teenager. But I was brought up by my fantastic mum, who is uh, a specialist in uh, children with autistic spectrum conditions and uh, children with additional needs. It takes a special kind of person to do that, I always find. In my own experience of, from friends and family who have gone through those kind of processes, people like your mum must have an awful lot of patience. I suppose not more than anyone else necessarily, but they really hone that kind of... I don't know what it is. It's like a special essence or something, isn't it? Do you find that with her? Or? My mum has an amazing ability to see the world from other people's points of view, even mm. if they're very divergent to her own. She's very skilled at understanding what might make a person feel anxious or angry or lash out, mm. even if to your average person that emotion may not seem very rational. Um, interestingly, my younger sister now works in Bristol in a very, very similar job, ah. so it must be something that runs through the family. Yeah. Unfortunately, whilst my mum is incredibly skilled at being compassionate and kind, I think she was a little bit too kind right. with her choice of partners. Right. Um, and so father number one and father number two for me were a succession of failures. The second one, I would say, is pretty much my benchmark for Beelzebub. Um, <laughs> thankfully, the father devil. number three, yeah, well, really, really, he was a terrible person. The guy I'm very proud to call my dad now, mm. who um, my mum finally agreed to marry a couple of summers ago. She was understandably quite resistant to committing well, yeah. to marriage again yeah. after two that maybe didn't go so well. He is an incredibly wonderful person with an immense capacity to take on my whole family. He could have just been my mum's husband yeah. and instead he's really become a papa bear to me. Aww. If I call home and my mum's not there, I can very easily natter and chatter the night away with my dad. I love him very much. But unfortunately, my home life as a younger person had the rather toxic combination of extreme isolation in the country and quite a tense, treading on eggshells kind of atmosphere because of my mum's partners. Yeah. As a result, I had a bunch of keys bigger than your average jailers to get into my friends' houses and often stay over there. Oh, nice. And I'm extremely grateful to a lot of other people's parents who I think knew through their maternal and paternal spidey senses that maybe all was not as rosy as it might have ostensibly seemed in my household and gave me places to stay. There were a lot of convenient excuses made as to why I needed to stay over at other people's houses. And so, in a way, being in the countryside and not being able to get home very easily after a night out was the perfect excuse just to stay out and mm. stay with friends. How old were you at this point? My mum married her second partner, I think, when I was about 12, roughly. And then she finally managed to divorce him, which was a very difficult thing for all sorts of entangled reasons when I was around 21. I've spoken about this before, but I actually had a bit of a breakdown when I was 20, 21. Those are the most impressionable years of your life, aren't they? Yeah. Really, it's where you're learning who you are, essentially. Well, what I learned was throughout my teenage years and my early 20s, I'd really thrown myself into work. 
not only did I thrive at school and it was a safe space for me, and it was also always a comfort that I felt like I could control how well I did at school. My academia was entirely in my hands and no one could take that away from me. But also, it was my way to get away. Mm. I thought, if I study hard enough and long enough and um, get enough good grades, then I can go to university. And that's a legitimate way for me to get out of the country and out of this sticky situation with my home life. I now know that it's quite common that after trauma is over, after danger has passed, that's when people fall apart. That's when the breakdown happens. Because after years Mm. of tensely holding yourself together, your whole body relaxes because it feels that it can. And sometimes that relaxation turns into um, a collapse. Is that a form of PTSD? Well, do you know what? I I was only diagnosed with PTSD about three years ago. What happened with me is I found that after years of academia being my safety net, that breakdown happened just before I was due to finish my degree. And one of the biggest failures which is also the biggest success of my life is that I never managed to finish my dissertation. I was studying linguistics so I actually have a bloody degree in talking which will (laughs) surprise nobody. (laughs) I make the cunning linguist joke a lot. (laughs) Embarrassingly I used to have that on my business cards. (laughs) So was it the fear of coming out of the controlled environment like you were saying when things were going wrong at home academia was your safe house almost and to the was it the fear of that it was coming to an end that kind of triggered it when my mum was finally getting divorced it looked like I might have to give evidence in court of certain things which had happened with the guy she was getting rid of so this, um, is, this, this is really serious right it so was big yeah, okay. it was big I won't go into the no, details but it was pretty to. massive yeah. I just could not handle writing a complicated dissertation which was actually about pornographic magazines for women which explains so much in my latter life Um, I just couldn't handle the intensity of that particular task Mm. and juggling the emotional intensity of what was happening and it wasn't even a choice really I just had to self-preserve thankfully I had a lot of support from my tutors and professors everyone was brilliant I got an extension for lots of my essays, but really when it came to the crunch, I just didn't have anything left in me to complete that final dissertation, which to me was the most terrifying thing in the world. As somebody who had always leaned on doing well in that academic sense, to then say, oh no, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I just can't do this, I can't finish this, was, was really f- frightening. How did it make you feel? I mean, obviously you've worked so hard up until this point, it's almost like the last hurrah, and you can't quite do it. I was desperately gutted, gutted as a fishmonger's prized salmon at the time, <laughs> gutted as a, a silly teenage blonde in the first five minutes of a horror film <laughs> at the time. Yeah. Yeah. But do you know what? The reason that I describe that as also one of the biggest successes of my life is that it taught me at age 20, 21, that you can fail at what you have always thought is going to be your success and you will be fine. Mm. You will be more than fine. I still got a first in my degree because I'd worked so hard and stacked up points elsewhere. And I had the time to emotionally heal. It was an amazing lesson, really. As frightening and deeply unpleasant as it was at the time, 
I stand by the idea that that set me up for life. Yeah. It taught me that everything can fall down and you will still be fine so long as you have friends and so long as you have some self-belief. Yeah. But it also really taught me the value of kindness because I had so many wonderful people around me at that time who were really looking out for my well-being when I wasn't really able to myself. Mm. Hilariously, I, I now know that this is quite common, if you are in a situation where you you are unable subconsciously or consciously to actually face what is causing you trauma and the true root of your distress, it's quite usual to displace that trauma and blame it on something else. Oh, really? I knew I felt very, very unwell. I now know that's because I was going through extreme fear and anxiety. Was that, did you feel mentally unwell or physically unwell? Oh, I, I lost so much weight that you could practically play the xylophone on, on my spine. Wow. I was so skinny. Worryingly, I got a lot of modelling work at that oh. time, which says hideous things mm. about society. Yeah. But I knew I felt really poorly. I was very shaky. I wasn't sleeping properly. In my strange state of mind, I decided that this must be because I was spending a lot of time indoors, desperately trying to plough through essays that mm. were just insurmountable, along with everything else I was coping with, and that I must have a vitamin D deficiency. Okay. Uh, so I decided I was going to go on sunbeds, and as a result, <laughs> I was like, I associate the colour orange with terrible things because not only do we all now have an association in our minds with the human what's it that is President yeah. Trump. Yes, exactly. Um, but for me, the most tanned times in my life <laughs> were, when, were when I was extremely stressed. So I was, yeah, I was very, very brown, um, but simultaneously extremely blanched white with fear. <laughs> yeah. I think what you've been saying, though, about, you know, not being able to finish your dissertation and things like that, people listening will be waiting on exam results or to get the results from their degrees. So it's nice, it's really nice to hear you say... That it doesn't not that it doesn't matter but that's not the be all and end all because no. like you said you had all the support around you but also look where you are now because your career has been so varied you've done some, <laughs> it's kind of obviously reading up on the things that you've done you've done such a smorgasbord of different things which is fantastic but i think we should call it a smegmasbord a smegmasbord yeah i like that word especially so, now that i i specialize in sexual health this is true so what would you say is there a person or was there a time or you know, a situation that gave you your first break into what you're doing now because i suppose as far as careers are concerned yours is as i've said really diverse and varied but you are you're kind of a, you're a sex expert aren't you yeah, I'd say I'm a sex expert slash broadcaster slash yeah. journalist. Um, I began just purely as a journalist. As you might imagine, because I only, I, I sort of came out of university in a hurry and a flurry and a crumpled mess oh. of a person, really, I hadn't had any space at all to think about what came next. I knew that I loved words and that I wanted to do something to do with media and expression and creativity. But God, I mean, that's fluffier than <laughs> that a man's quite, belly button after wearing vague. a fresh pair of boxer yeah. shorts, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Equally dark and Lovely. furry. I was very oh. fuzzy around the edges, yeah. So I just had this very amorphous idea of what I wanted to do. And it was quite, again, quite nerve-wracking because a lot of my friends had done work experience or they'd applied to schemes mm. to get their first foot on the ladder in, in various vocations. Yeah. And I was just comparatively shrugging feeling chuffed to still be vaguely together in a, in a human-shaped form. Yeah. Um, but other than that, 
really unclear on what my next direction should be. You'd never tried and tested anything, never like, like you say, work experience, or you didn't really have anything in your mind other than that you loved words. When I was in my first year of university, I was encouraged by people around me to apply to be a correspondent on Richard and Judy at an open <laughs> audition. And actually, I, I came second Did in that you? competition. Yeah, but Richard wow. and Judy took a shine to me. And for a very short time, I was employed as Northwest correspondent, which sounds glossy and glamorous. Let me tell you now, this is Kim. quite a claim to fame, this. It was in no way glam. My first assignment for Richard and Judy was to go to... Oh, where was it? It was somewhere like Bognor Regis or... Uh, somewhere... It, it wasn't It wasn't the starry heights, let me tell you now. There was a baker who had decided to encapsulate entire meals with inside pies, like right. bolty pies and Ugh. cheeseburger pies. And Oh, it was Wigan. That's right. My first assignment was in Wigan. I had to try and get people to sample these pies for a segment on Richard and Judy, Ooh. except it was Noah's Ark weather. The sky was raining not only cats and dogs, but the entirety of London Zoo, <laughs> for good measure. It was People were saturated. It was about half past eight in the morning. They were hurrying to work. They did not want a gobby girl stuck, <laughs> sticking a gob full of pie in their face. So there's this ridiculous footage of me running around, skidding all over these cobbles in Wigan, desperately trying to force-feed people <laughs> baked goods. So I guess I'd had this early foray into Aww. TV. Uh, was this before uh, the days of YouTube? Because I really feel like I want to see Thank freaking hell that. it was. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's a VHS somewhere lurking in mm. the depths. I was also on Ready Steady Cook. Were there's you? green peppers on Ready Steady Cook. Did you win? Yeah. I did win. Hey. I did win. So um, from Ready Steady Cook? Yeah. You, so what I'd, happened from there? <laughs> well, I guess I'd had this sprinkling of vague bits of experience. Uh, I'd written for a couple of local magazines in Leeds. I was at Leeds University. Ah, so was I. Oh, were you? Yeah. It's a brilliant place. I loved it. It's Absolutely a, I, loved it. I go back to, to lecture and give talks now and again. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm still very firm friends with many people in the linguistics and phonetics oh, department. Yeah, it's, I, I have a lot of love for those people in that place. It's a brilliant city as well. Especially mm. if you're a student, it's really like there's so many universities and nursing colleges and music colleges yeah. there. There's so many people to meet. For me, choosing Leeds was such a boon, not only because I was offered a place at Oxbridge and I chose not to go because at the time. Clever clogs. Well, I was also <laughs> just coming into my own self-expression and I'd right. start going clubbing and I, I, I was like sort of dyeing my hair and wearing ridiculous outfits made from inflatable cushions and bits of fake grass and Christ knows what. Are there photos? Uh, I feel like I need to see photos. Yeah, I feel okay. like Max Spielman should have sued me for some of the things that I made them develop. <laughs> they were not easy on the eye, those outfits. <laughs> Although some would argue that I have not toned down my sartorial sense since then. But yeah, I felt like Oxbridge was going to squash my personality at a time that I was only really just starting to discover it and express mm. myself and also I think I did have a bit of a sense that I might be a very small fish in a large pond and that I would struggle to keep up. It also concerned me that at the time at least it was made clear that it would be frowned upon for you to have a part-time job as a student oh, because really? that would be yeah I, I was told that although they appreciated that I might be somebody who would need to work to support myself 
financially yeah. that they would have concerns that that would mean that I couldn't fully commit to the course. I felt like that was elitist yeah, and, yeah, and, and also that it would put me and my family in a very difficult position yeah. money-wise. But also I loved the vibe at Leeds, the course was really modern and open-minded. It was a very sociable place and frankly I needed a bit of mm. social education. As much as I had been going out in Manchester, I'd also spent a lot of time in this teeny weeny itsy bitsy village with some teeny weeny itsy bitsy mindset sometimes and certainly a population at that time which was whiter than Casper's anemic cousin and <laughs> Leeds is extremely multicultural mm, and it, it was really is. it was very important for me to be around people from different heritages and different backgrounds that societal education mm. for me was as important as, as my degree but yeah I'd done a little bit of work for music magazines and smattering of reporting for syllabuses and stuff. I actually was never part of the Leeds newspaper or radio gang. I found them quite cliquey and also I just didn't have so much confidence then, I guess. But anyway, when I came out of university, shrugging my shoulders as to what to do, I managed to get a job reviewing restaurants for a a little guide called... It was called the Itchy Guides. I think it was... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is that a northern thing? Is it just up north? I don't know whether I've just massively kind of alienated the rest of the country. At the time, it was a collection of, like, pocket-sized guidebooks to university cities. And they had launched a magazine off the back of that. I think the itchy bit was supposed to reflect, like, itchy feet and the desire to travel and explore. Nothing to do with itchy bits, which I moved on to, and I'm talking (laughs) about STIs now a lot. But, yeah, reviewing restaurants was great for me because it meant free grub at a time when my cupboards were bare Mm. and a chance to practice my writing. One day, I got a call from them saying, hey, we'd really like you to move to London and be our national editorial assistant. Bing, 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 bing. Yes, please. But can you move within a week? Uh, And it's the same week that your grandfather will happen to pass away. Uh, So you've got to grieve and you've got to help your mum arrange a funeral. And wah, 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 wah. Well, that's the way life goes, Mm. isn't it? So I did manage to move to London. Um, Within a week? Within a week, yeah. Well done, you. Well, I arrived here, as I say, I felt like I'd been shot out of a human cannon. (laughs) And that really did set the mood for the entirety of my time in the capital. But yeah, I found myself working at this itchy magazine. A lot of people, actually, who worked there went on to do great things. The guy I sat next to was called Alexi Duggins. He went on to become editor-at-large of Time Out and is a very successful Uh, journalist. One of the other guys there, Mike Toller, who was the editor at the time, uh, he's now a life coach and he also runs a very successful bunch of Saturday night raves called Club de Fromage. Yeah, yeah, like cheesy cheesy pop raves. Yeah, I'd go to that. Yeah, it's great fun. (laughs) It's great fun. But while I was working there, we used to get a lot of emails from PRs who wanted us to write about their products and their launches Mm. and their events. And I became very friendly with a girl named Jo who was an alcohol PR, which was handy for free drinks. Oh, yes. She repped a Sambuca company, a black Sambuca company. It was like liquid tar. Mm. And they were trying to align themselves with the fetish community. 
because that was seen as quite cool and sexy. And they offered me a hundred quid and a rubber skirt if I would dress up as some kind of vampire freak and give out shots of this black Sambuca to punters at fetish clubs. That meant that I made pals with people in those communities. Did had you? Had a free outfit. You were just like, yeah, cool. I'm there. To be quite honest. Did you honest, give it a second thought? Or? Well, I loved dressing up. I loved going out. I really wanted to throw myself into London life and discover and uncover everything that it had to offer. I was about 22, 23. I was single. I brought my Why the hell not? Let's go yeah, for it. Yeah. yeah. I didn't just grab life with both hands. I think I grew a few extra arms just to grab a bit more of it at that <laughs> yeah, time. Yeah. My only regret of that period of my life is that mm. I didn't keep a diary because I'm sure there were so many moments yeah, that were been quite ludicrous and technicolour. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then again, I was too busy living it to write it. So fair play, young me. Anyway, that meant that I started hanging out more at these fetish clubs. And I was then invited to the launch of the first ever London burlesque festival. Now, I remember exactly what I was wearing. I had modded my sixth form prom dress. I basically cut the tits out of it. <laughs> and then I'd glued these two like heart-shaped sequin. Now, I now know they're called pasties, nipple covers. Right. At the time I thought they were pasties. No. <laughs> One's the yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One is a Cornish, Cornish delicacy. <laughs> One is not what well, one might be. One, the, yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're both Cornish, de- yeah. Pornish delicacy, shall we say? Yeah. I had on an, a miniature top hat, which was very cool at the time. I looked like something out of a Panic at the Disco video, uh, and a pair of leather gloves, which were actually driving gloves from Halfords from my Saturday job that I had all the way through uni. Did you do you think um, you always had this within you? Because, like you were saying, like small town village, well, village girl, but you had this kind of need or want to express yourself didn't you really and either in what you were wearing or what you were doing or how you were the way you wanted to experience things so obviously going to this burlesque club and being exposed to all of these things by moving to London do you think it was always in there and you were just going like yes here I am when I lived back home I was a very experimental dresser and people would just permanently ask me where I was going like why just like that? Where are you off to? Is it fancy dressed? I still get that when I go back home. <laughs> it makes my eyes roll so yeah. much that I look like I'm doing an impression of that boulder chasing Indiana Jones. <laughs> um, I just don't really... I guess I don't understand why people think that you need a reason other than joy mm. to dress up. I know it's not everybody's bag, but it really is mine. I, I see dressing up as a great opportunity for fun. Mm. I do it primarily to amuse myself, but I also find that it often brings other people a beam. Do you do it every day as well? Pretty much. Because what you're wearing now is pretty fabulous. Oh, thanks. It's fairly casual. But but you've got like fishnets, high heels, fabulous skirt with little babies on it. They're Cupid dolls. There's Ah. one that's doing a little little fart over here, one that's got tacos and Cherry earrings, big bow in your hair. You look fantastic. Oh, thanks. Do you do this every day? Do you know, I actually feel so uncomfortable in normal clothes Mm. that I feel less awkward dressed up. I understand that the outfits that I feel comfy in would make certain other people feel extremely awkward Mm. and uncomfortable. If you put me in a pair of jeans, though, I feel so outside of my zone. I've thought a lot about this lately. I think there's two reasons for it. 
Firstly is that I tend to just pull on jogging bottoms or jeans or whatever when I'm feeling ill. Right. So if I put on my ill clothes, then yeah, I get like an anti-placebo effect Mm. of feeling bad. But secondly, and this is a bit of a sad admission, I guess, but by marking myself out as different, I feel like I don't have to compete on the same level as most people. That's interesting. If you put me in normal clothes, I feel like I don't have something that is my... USP, my advantage, the thing that means that I don't need to compare myself to other people because I'm not them. It's in a funny way, the way that I dress is one of the things that is perhaps a little bit of a defence mechanism on some level. It's refreshing. Although I, well, it's I don't really want to pathologise it too much because yeah. it's primarily a source of joy. But I think especially when I was younger, I thought, well, I don't feel like I can compete with most people in the way that I look, so I'm going to choose to not look like them at all. I'm not even going to compare. It's a great attitude. Well, I tried to look like everybody else when I was a teenager for a while. I remember spending an inordinate amount of pocket money on this foul pair of... They were called popper trousers. Had like them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the kappa. Yeah, they, they were called ter- kappa slapper trousers. Yeah. Trousers. There was a fashion in Macclesfield, which was the nearest town to me when I was small, to um, have just one leg wide open with the poppers all undone. So it just okay. flapped around your groin. Sounds really annoying. <laughs> yeah, really it? annoying. <laughs> and it looked like you'd had some kind of toilet based accident permanently. Mm. But yeah, I did spend one summer trying to do the sportswear thing and. It was just so not me, and I looked like a crap facsimile of everybody else, and I couldn't keep up, and I just didn't enjoy it. I really didn't enjoy trying to fit into that, so I decided, well, if I don't fit naturally, I'll make a point of standing out, and that works for me best. But actually, weirdly, I've started to go to the gym lately, or go to upbeat classes. I like dance classes. You're telling me about your spinning session. Um horribly smug about it (laughs) but for a long time the gym gave me a lot of anxiety and I think it was partly because you have to wear gym clothes so I automatically didn't feel like myself but secondly it's a very unique dynamic isn't it the power dynamics of gym it took me ages to break this down as to why it gave me a very intrinsic sense of unease but I think being in an environment where there's somebody else telling me something to do with my body and I can't, don't really feel able to say no is quite, I hate the word, but it's quite triggering for me. It reminds me of times when I'm I was sure younger. It, I'm when, sure it probably yeah. is for a lot of other people as yeah. well. They just don't know it. No, it took yeah. me ages to figure out that the sensation I got was a lot like I used to get when I lived with my mum's partner and I felt like there was a person telling me off or I had to comply to somebody's rules within a trapped environment. Certain gym classes to me feel like complying to somebody's rules within a trapped environment. Mm. That's not a pleasant way to sweat. No, it's not. Uh, (laughs) No. So how did you go from fetish clubs and burlesque experiences to where you are now, I suppose, because you write for Marie Claire, you've written for Stylist. You also, you work on the sex education Netflix series. Yes, I do. you? Well, that was, I was very excited to talk to you about that. I watched it thinking, like, this is going to be rubbish. And I was like, oh, I'm addicted. Binge watched it within a couple of days. They so. sent me season 
one a little bit earlier than everybody else to watch it and I had my heart in my mouth and my fingers crossed and mm. so how did you get to work in sex I suppose okay let me let me give you the the potted version because that burlesque event that I mentioned yes. earlier is actually integral to this whole oh, okay. story okay so a photographer took a snap of me wearing that crazy Congress. outfit. Yeah. yeah, yeah, my leather gloves and my, <laughs> my, my bazoingas out dress. And it was for a magazine called Bizarre, which at the time was um, the world's leading glossy mag for alternative culture. It covered all the most wild, weird and wonderful stuff. They liked the picture, they got in contact with me to get a bit of info for the caption. And I have a very idiosyncratic way of writing emails. Oh, yes, so, you do. Yeah, Kim, I you, guess you... I've written one down. <laughs> Hopeful day is like a scratch card, hopefully profitable, but at the very least coated in shiny stuff and satisfying to uncover. <laughs> one of the I've best emails a, I think I've ever had. I think the one I was sending this week says, Hey there, hope the allotment of your life today is abundant and bounteous with the delectable veggies of good fortune <laughs> and the maggots of misery don't dare take one munch of your joyousness. So, <laughs> yeah, so um, that's uh, quite unusual but also memorable which is probably your USP I have do you know what I've always opened my emails like this is a trademark of mine I suppose with something silly designed Mm. to stick in people's heads but also designed to like lift their day we get so many emails that are making demands and giving us commands and And I just think people need a little bit of a lift sometimes. Yeah, Why we really not? do. Why not? I think there's so many opportunities in life where we could slide a little bit of extra joy and kindness in, but we don't, sometimes because it doesn't occur to us to mess with the norm. Yeah. And the norm is often... The rat race. The rat race. Yeah, the doldrums. D- dullness, yeah, the yeah. doldrums, yeah. Or just being a little bit harsh with each other. Certainly early on in my career, I think some people thought that that kind of introduction on an email was a bit unprofessional but I found that at least 90% of people responded to it really well you're being yourself you're being authentic that buzzword that everyone uses yeah yeah, it felt like a genuine thing I felt like if well okay if I want to make my living being a communicator then I should communicate in the way that comes naturally to me it will not be everybody's cup of tea you can't be everyone's cup of tea. No, you can't please all the people no. all the time. You just, you, yeah, it doesn't, you ha- doesn't happen. Yeah. It doesn't happen. Yeah. I, I say these days, you can't be everyone's cup of tea, but you can be the cup of tea that some people want to wake up to every morning. Oh, like you that. can make that, you can be that brew that really hits, hits the, the spot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hits the spot for them. So I emailed Bizarre Magazine mm. with my crazy little intro and crucially, my sign-off that said that I was a, an editorial assistant at the Itchy Ooh. Guides. And their editor, Alex Godfrey, his name is, saw something in that email and wrote to me and said, we like your style, we like the way you express yourself, we like the way you look, do you have any ideas from the magazine? I pitched wow. a piece about mouth modification, like people who were filing their teeth into vampire fangs and cutting their tongues in half to make them forked like serpents. Yes. Yeah, yeah. They said yes. I wrote that piece within, I think, about six months, a year. They promoted me to be a full-time member of staff there. Amazing. And suddenly I was an alternative culture journalist specialising in writing about kink and fetish because I had the entrance to all those clubs. I did that in total for about six and a half years and got myself really embedded in that culture and learnt a lot about what people need in order to feel like they trust you. 
because you know, when people are talking about sexuality and about, yeah. yeah and especially at that time this was about a good 10 years ago there was more danger associated with that danger to your uh, your reputation yeah, it seemed yeah. to be risky exactly you shouldn't talk about it it's under your clothes it was very it's, taboo yeah, yeah. it was super stigmatized mm. lots of those people were very justifiably media shy yeah. and so i learned a lot about what it takes to make them feel that their story is in good hands and that they can relax about sharing it then Fifty Shades of Grey happened. Ooh. Yeah. And as much as I think that book is terrible. A pile of tripe. Yes. Yeah. The trilogy is just oh God, three is not the magic number there, is it? <laughs> I can't deny that it started some constructive conversations and it catapulted my career to the next level. Cause suddenly this niche subject that I'd been writing about, the BBC wanted yeah, someone who could an do appetite. it. Yeah, yeah, the Guardian yeah. wanted mm. someone. I was getting approached by people like Jurex to work with them on projects because they wanted you a bit of that work spike. with Superdrug and yeah, yeah do you know yeah. what I'm very proud to work with Superdrug I'm an um, ambassador for Superdrug now and I'm their in-house sex educator Brilliant. they've done some great things for women's rights they were the first to reduce the price of their generic own brand morning after pill Boots actually said controversially that they wouldn't do it because they thought that it would encourage women to have unsafe sex That's Ridiculous. Uh, it's a piss take, frankly. <laughs> it's so untrusting of women. Research shows that the majority of people aren't relying on emergency mm. contraception as their main form of mm. contraception. It's there for emergencies and it gives people, if that's the right choice for you, then it can really be an essential thing in your yeah. life plan. You You've know. hit the nail on the head, it's about choice. Yes, isn't it? Yeah. And women, as women, we need that ability to be able to choose, it's particularly when it comes to our own reproductive processes super drug yeah. yeah super drug are absolutely brilliant at putting women first and trusting women to make mm. the right decisions for them and they disseminate very good accessible information but yeah at this time when everybody wanted those 50 shades of gray stories folks from the public started approaching me for advice right. and i was trying to be a good journalist I was calling up doctors and gynaecologists and psychologists and doing my research, trying to make sure that I wasn't telling anyone to do anything with their wangles and fandangles that was going to end up you know, with them in A&E, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. I had many a sleepless night thinking, oh, God, Ooh. someone's going to try and do S&M with the contents of B&Q. And it's like when I'm you give people directions and you don't actually know where they've just asked to go. You know, you think, oh, have I actually done that? I've sent them in the wrong direction there. Or if you're advising people about their reproductive exactly you know or whatever then there is an element of responsibility precisely right? yeah, i yeah. didn't want to tell somebody something about their genitals though, where <laughs> they ended up being less than gentle well, yeah. and i was going to be sued yeah, or, or yeah yeah exactly saying, um, actually alex <laughs> and it also just mattered to me to be decent mm. at the indecent things i was talking about sure. And it also occurred to me that I didn't have the knowledge to know that if somebody was maybe in a dangerous situation or there were signs of abuse, mm. I didn't know how to spot those red flags preemptively. And I felt like I needed to polish up my skills there and get some training. So I remembered that when I was young, there was a charity called Brooke, a young people's yes, sexual yes. wellness charity. So I just dropped them an email saying, look, I have not got two pennies to rub together because as much as I was making a living it wasn't much of one mm. journalism doesn't pay a lot of cash each mm. um, yeah I've not got two coppers to rub together but a lot of people are coming to me asking about how to rub their parts together right, right. 
would you consider letting me come along to some of your training sessions for your staff if I can help you with press? Can we do a trade? I'm now an ambassador for that charity, very proud to be. And it was a wonderful relationship. It was the start of something brilliant. So they helped you? Yes, they yeah. did. They trained me up in how to advise on contraception. They allowed me to get a qualification that means that I can give young people what's called a C card. Right. It means that if they flash that in certain shops and pharmacies, they can get free condoms and barrier contraception without having to go to their GP or family planning oh, clinic. Fantastic. It's great for young people who maybe don't have access to those places because they're far away right, they're, or you know, the problem of period poverty people can't afford it yeah, yeah. well actually i work with another charity yeah. called bloody good period yeah, too yeah, so yeah, i'm yeah. i'm trying to do a lot of charity work because i believe in it i've also found that working for charities is a great way to get people to pay you on time because you can remind <laughs> them that they're not a charity mm. and if they don't pay you then that negatively impacts your ability to help good causes so this is very true <laughs> lay that guilt yeah. on those yeah. bastards yeah yeah uh, so yeah, I retrained and everything went from there really. But you know what, although that was primarily motivated by Fifty Shades, it also came a point in my life where up until then a lot of the work I'd been doing was quite hedonistic. We'd definitely done some more social cause motivated stuff mm. at Bizarre Magazine. For example, we worked with the mother of Sophie Lancaster, who was a, a woman, a very young woman who identified as a goth, mm. who very sadly was killed by people who did not like the way that she dressed. Oh, Christ, it's crazy, yeah. isn't it? Obviously, that mm. I, I could identify with, you, with that, yeah. yeah. We actually campaigned with Sophie Lancaster's mum as a magazine to get the law on hate crimes changed to incorporate an attack on somebody on the basis mm. of the clothes they were wearing or their identity in that alternative way. That gave me a taste of the power of what can be achieved for good and did, by did journalism. They yes, they did. The law was changed. That's incredible. Yeah, it was excellent. We were not solely responsible for that, but because a lot of our audience, Bizarre Magazine audience, mm. identified as goth or as metalers or as alt or as fetish people, mm. they all felt like they were part of subcultures where what happened resonated with them. And yeah, that had given me a taste of what could be achieved through speaking compassionately to people. I was getting more interested in the psychology of fetish and sexuality and gender identity yeah. and body modification, things like that. I was also starting to think, well, it's probably not sustainable for me to forever be the bouncy Duracell bunny who's going to a different sex club every week and doing underwater bondage or dressing yourself up. out as yeah, well, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I was thinking, well, if I also, if I get a relationship that's committed, then I may need to place some boundaries on what I feel comfortable yeah. doing in terms of experimentation. I always felt able to say no to things that I wasn't, comfortable didn't with. feel comfortable yeah, yeah. with, although there have been some fuzzy boundaries there as well. Mm. Uh, upsettingly, it's women's magazines who I felt have pushed me to do more than I felt comfortable That's with surprising. physically. That's yeah. really surprising. But yeah, um, that Fifty Shades moment coincided with me wanting to do more for other people with my job rather mm. than just doing what was fun to me. So you, you work in all kinds of sexual capacities now. I am spread thinner than a miser's marmite, as I like to say. Um, yeah, I do some work with brands, um, which keeps the wolf from the door. There's a German brand called Womanizer, 
terrible name. Doesn't have the Didn't same. Brittany have that. As well? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It does not have the same connotations in German, right. but it's a brilliant product. It's essentially um, they invented this new technology for vibrators that, rather than bashing against the skin, yeah. this actually instead stimulates the clitoris without touching it. But oh my god, the sensation is. I had to sit down for, for quite a long time after trying it. Um, I also work with a female-founded company called The Sway. They're a sex box subscription service. Mm. So every couple of months, they'll send you a box full of like really nice goodies, um, like massage candles and bondage ribbons and all things that they've sourced from all over Europe. A little bit more tasteful, maybe. Really luxurious, yeah, mm. yeah but still quite an affordable yeah. price. And the genius part of what the Sway do is that every box contains some conversation cue cards that are supposed to help break the ice and help you have that, That's a great that idea. constructive yeah. chat. Yeah. And then I also work with a Japanese company called Tenga. Now, I'm a bit of Japanophile. Mm. I've been to Tokyo and Kyoto a, a number of times. I find the cultural differences there absolutely intriguing. Are they a bit more liberated? They seem so, or is that In some ways, yes. In mm. other ways, no. They're definitely more open-minded about men having sex toys. I think that people with penises should be able to experiment with different sensations, the same as people with vulvas. Mm. I think the more that we all... Uh, discover our bodies and normalize um, the conversation yeah, yeah. right exactly mm. it shouldn't be a shameful thing to enjoy your own body no. I think people waste way too much of their lives feeling ashamed of the skin they're in mm. and totally afraid of exploring what it can do for them mm. and actually if you can make your body feel nice if you if you can prove to yourself that it can feel good to you you're kind of more likely to feel good in it as well. Um, and Tenga make a lot of toys for people with penises. And so I'm very glad to spread that Japanese word all over the UK. Thanks, Tenga. So this is kind of a uh, ten tenuous link. But if we move on now to a very different form of collaboration, how did you get involved with the Women of the Future programme? And what do their mantras of kindness and collaboration mean to you? Well... Um, I was really bowled over, and it was a strike of a bowl as well, <laughs> to be nominated two years ago for Media Woman of the Future. Who nominated um, you? Do you know? Do you know what? So unlike me, but several people encouraged me to nominate myself. Oh, good. And the process of going through what I had achieved at that point was really bolstering it kind of it was a bit of a it was a bit of a shock i guess mm. to take stock of everything that i'd been working on because we don't do that you don't ever go no. you don't ever pause and think wow look at all, all, everything i've achieved you, no one does it they always just think oh i haven't got that i haven't got this they always think about what you haven't got but you don't actually think about everything that is laid behind you no or... and i also i think i think this goes for a lot of people but my northern upbringing was a lot about being humble and mm. not being braggy and mm. not being flash or showy that was not really seen as a good thing at all and it took me a while to realize that you can have gratitude for things in your life without that being expressed as a nauseating amount of pride right you can have authenticity and morals for yourself that you stick to mm. without that making you bolshy 
you can open doors for yourself. You know, you don't have to be a doormat <laughs> all, all the time. Yeah, there's, there are balances and nuances. It's a thing to say. Yeah. It's a thing to say. I think for a long time, I felt so lucky to be working in a field that I loved so much that I wasn't giving myself credit for the fact that it was work and I'd worked really hard to be there. Yes, I'd got some lucky breaks, but when those opportunities came along, I gave everything I got and dug harder and faster and mm. deeper to find more. Yeah. And it's okay to say, I have gratitude for where I am, but also I earned this. Yeah, yeah, or, well, don't, yeah, or I, to, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, or I enjoy my job, but mm. also, I ensure that I'm good at it. I try really hard to be good value within yeah. this. It, you can do both. You can be humble yeah. and you can have a sense of peace with yourself that you are decent at what you do. I like the word decent. I like the word decent. Um, you've checked your moral compass. Yeah, exactly. Uh, still aligned. Yeah. So no one died and here we are. Yeah. 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 So I put forward this list of reasons why I thought that it might be worth considering me and also I thought about what I had to bring to the women of the future as a collective as well and you know what it's been such a joy to join and it's prompted me to have a number of personal revelations the first of which I hope was already in my psyche but I was starting to become awakened to the power of kindness not just that it's nice to be kind, but that it's powerful. It's really powerful. Mm. In my job now as a sex educator, there's a limited number of people who have a high media profile doing that. And the ones that are women in particular, people expect you to view them as your competition. It's a sad thing that really people love sad, to pit women yeah. against women. And for a long time, because I'm self-employed, I did see all those other people, but particularly those women, as threats to me. I felt like they might pull the rug out from underneath my feet. You think that's um, something that comes with maturity, though? Because did you feel that when you were a little bit younger? Yes. Or just starting out? Yeah. And you were like, oh, God, why have they all got that? Why can't I have that? And you, like, an element of jealousy or wanting to emulate them and the competitive nature then comes out. Straight up as well, I have to say that it was a big part of it was that I just wasn't earning a lot of money mm. so I really did see other people getting jobs as a direct threat to my ability mm. to keep a roof over my head yeah. and I don't want to belittle that I but think it's really eat, yeah you? not that I was massively poor but my god I had credit card debt that was so far in the red that a drag queen's lipstick would be jealous of it <laughs> it was scary it was scary I actually just got debt free about two and a half years ago and somewhat ironically I bought myself a smacker of a Baroque pearl ring to celebrate so quite a ring <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's not subtle is it no, it's not understated that's a, yeah, no. that's the, that's a corker. Um, but mm. yeah I do think it's a good thing to be aware that people who don't have a lot of money they do feel more threatened yeah. now that I'm more of a position of financial privilege I do actively try and make room at the table for people who have less than me because I think they need it more because you can yeah but it was a real lovely revelation for me to realize that those women weren't my competition there was room for us all and especially in my line of work there need to be multiple voices if you're only getting your information about sexuality from one person yeah. then that's wrong it needs to be more diverse they yeah, need to be more people of society yeah exactly it? yeah. and it's such a lovely feeling when 
you can call up someone who is your uh, your fellow, if you will, your mm. colleague, and say, hey, I'm doing this job, do you want in? Mm. Or, hey, I'm busy on this day, would you like this commission? Here's some cash, here's an opportunity. And that will come back to you, feed into that mm. system, and it's a much more healthy one than locking yourself away on your own and feeling like you've got to defend your every yeah, tower. But the other thing that the process of applying for the Women of the Future Award prompted me to reflect on is the need for pauses in our lives. I'm so often running at a thousand miles an hour and I'm thinking, oh God, I'm learning so much. Mm. Oh, there's a lesson here. Oh, there's, like, that's an amazing thing to remember. That's a great mantra. If you don't build in pauses, then you never get time to actually reflect on those no, things. No, and it doesn't, and it doesn't register no. either, does it? It just floats around somewhere on the top and you forget to pull it in and, you know, think about it properly. Yeah, so I've built in some breaks to put on the breaks and I think I'm better at my job but I'm also just um, I feel better as a result so thanks women of the future for making me just be aware that the future doesn't need to come as fast as I was bringing it on and actually it would be a better future if I just pause and think about it for a second yeah. so of all the warm fuzzy feelings it yes exactly. yeah yeah Okay, we have spoken for quite a long time. Sorry, so I'm such lovely. a natural. No, it's really <laughs> lovely speaking to you. I've got some quick fire questions. Sure. Okay, so we touched on this already, but what would you describe as your greatest success? Oh, my greatest success. I don't think I want to pick a greatest success because I'm really lucky that there have been loads of high points. But lately, a really big achievement for me at the ripe old age of 36 was I passed my driving test. Hey! Yeah. Uh, it was really, it was a big thing for me. On the roads um, of London as well. On so the roads of London, no yeah. yeah. Well, it was, um, it had added meaning for me because for a long time I was told I couldn't drive because I kept having blackouts. Oh, are you okay? I, do you know what? I really am. What it was, mm. which I think I mentioned, touched on very lightly earlier, was it was a form of post-traumatic stress oh, disorder. Yeah, it was PTSD. Wow. If you are someone who's undergoing trauma but you don't feel like you can talk to someone mm. about it or it's not safe for you to express it or you're so busy, particularly as a younger person, trying to handle it mm. that you have no emotional room for it actually to, <laughs> to, to, to register... Yeah then quite a common thing for your body to do is to collapse because if you think about it that's a very clear sign to the responsible adults you will hope will be around yeah. you that you are in distress and you need help so it's kind of like you know how a computer just shuts down when there's too much going on yeah i was blue screening my, my blackouts were, were my were internal buffering. yeah exactly <laughs> but while that was maybe quite a, a clever intrinsic protective device when I was younger that yeah. my body kicked into that uh, white flag surrender mode over time the neural pathways in your head can get used to that and you carry on blacking out even when you've actually developed better coping mechanisms or that's no longer helpful or the danger has passed but your body is so used to shutting down when mm. things get overwhelming that it does it as a matter of course i liken my body to a bit like a smoke alarm that goes off and you burn your toast it's a, it's a bit over dramatic yeah. i was blacking out the first sign that something was wrong and sometimes i wouldn't even consciously be able to register what it was that freaked me out it might be a smell that was connected to a memory or seeing something yeah. yeah it was very hard to control and at first it was misdiagnosed as epilepsy and I, it took seeing a specialist neurologist to get this new diagnosis three years ago but the great news is 
I had some therapy. I actually benefited a lot from hypnotherapy, which I was enormously cynical about. Yeah, I thought it was absolute dangly bollocks. Yeah. What I needed was somebody to put me in such a relaxed state, in a really secure, safe space, mm. that I was able to talk about the trauma that I was carrying without my body going into that automatic, like, ah, no, yeah. defence, shut down, blackout. So that was, that was perfect mode. for yeah, you. Yeah. That was a perfect scenario for you to address that issue. It worked for me. There's some rapid eye movement work that you can do as well that can be very useful for some people. It sounds like mm. X-Files, woo-woo, crazy hippie <laughs> bullshit, but the idea of it is that by stimulating certain parts of the brain, you can move a memory from the subconscious to the conscious and thus deal with it in a more rational structured ordered way won't work for everybody worked a treat for me i got medically passed to be able to learn to drive it was about a lot more than putting my foot down on the gas it was about putting my foot Mm. down and saying no more of that history that's not going to rule me anymore so now i'm saving up for an audi (laughs) never thought i'd want an audi but I'm rechristening it the Loudy because it's going to be a very loud car. <laughs> I have no doubt. Stereo on full, <laughs> me cheering and whooping as I drive along, straight through the congestion zone. That's quite an image. <laughs> yeah. And your greatest failure? I'm glad that you put it as greatest. Because <laughs> I, I really, I, I, do you know what? There's very few things that I've failed at that haven't turned out to be quite good for me in one way or another. One thing I've started doing lately that I think I've failed at before is recognising when somebody perhaps isn't a kind person or isn't able to be their kindest or Mm. the the degree of kindness that I need at that point in their life. Particularly with regards to my personal life, Mm. I think I gave a lot of people who I thought had huge charisma and massive potential and great talent a lot of rope when they weren't always the kindest of people. And it was a year ago that I made what seems like quite a simple decision to only spend my precious time with people who were kind. But honestly, the minute that I decided that that was my hard line, I was gonna stick to it, it made it so much easier to make decisions about dating because the first sign I got that somebody was messing me around or wasn't behaving kindly, even if they, you know, even if I could see that they had the potential to be. If kindness wasn't at the forefront of where they were right now, then I didn't want to spend time with them at that moment. It made it so much easier to just go, no, you're not the one now. I think that's something that comes with experience again, right? I love being in my mid You had to have a bit of a shitty time to get to the stage oh god the Glastonbury portaloo of shitty times (laughs) for a while I did quite fret that I'd maybe inherited my lovely mum's fucking awful taste in men Uh, not now my dad is wonderful but um, yeah I I actually did think oh god is this heritable is Mm. this almost a genetic thing are we both drawn it's going to be something that plays on your mind yeah but once I'd made that decision, and being around women who talk openly about kindness as a powerful thing yeah. really helped me with that, it meant that I, I went on a date with somebody who had actually known in a different context for many years as a friend. He was he used to date somebody else who was in a, a committed relationship mm. for a long time. We were brought back together and I realised that he was single. And it was his kindness 
in addition to his massive sexiness and uh, <laughs> enormous skills as a movie editor. The twinkle uh, the, in yeah, his yeah, eye. Yeah. yeah, oh, he's just a twinkle all over. He's a, he's a massive, sparkly, <laughs> spandangly guy. One of the loveliest things about it was when he first met my friends, they all commented on how much he listened to them and how they felt seen by him and how it, nice it was to meet someone who was so enthusiastic mm, about them rather than trying to perform to them and mm. enrapture Show them and yeah. with his charm. Yeah. yeah. I used to definitely be like the heart eyes emoji for guys who had that, you know, that magnetism where they just charm everyone in a room. Mm. They were the light bulb and everyone else was the moths. Yes. I now prefer people who use their, their light bulb self to make other people glow. Yeah. Oh, um, I like that a lot. God, I'm wanky. Oh, that, was, that was nice. Nice. Cheers. Don't know where that came from. Is there anything that scares you? Yeah. Getting old without having seen and done as much of the things that I want to see and do. Sounds like you've already kind of ticked a lot of stuff off. I think the world is so wide, mm. and my eyes are too, and I just want to see and experience it as much as possible. That's my next question. What's left on your to-do list? So that kind of God, write a bloody in. book. People have been nagging me to write a book. Why haven't you? Okay, um, I'm terrible. Do you know what? In the past, I've been really terrible at getting on with things. I, do you procrastinate? Or it's is more it a time that, you don't have time, like physical time. Yeah, it's yeah. more. It's that self-employment. It's mm. really hard to say no to a job because you're writing your novel yeah. or whatever. There's that sense of like not knowing when the next commission or the next project is going to come along. So you become a real yes person. Right. Now I have a bit more of a, a bit more financial stability. I could say no to a few more things, but weaning myself mm. off that instinct to go. Oh, God, yeah, I'll do that job and then I'll write the novel. It's been hard. Also, with me, I think everybody expected me to write a sex book. And I'm actually writing one now. I'm trying to trying to get on with that. It's called Source. Um, it's in your source for saucy things. And I'm trying to make, I'm trying to make it funny, but also Quirky. inspiring. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of sex manuals out there. And it took me ages to find out what my unique selling point yeah. for mine was going to be. But... Uh, I've learnt that humour can be a great springboard for education and it's also something I love. I love to write humour. I think humour is linked to sex as well, isn't it? Because we're very British and we're a little bit prudish and we like to giggle when we talk about bums and release and stuff like sex that. Sex is so also... When, sex is inherently freaking ridiculous it really is a little it's bit. two people banging and clanging their private parts together <laughs> or it can be it's not all about penetration mm. one of my favorite phrases about sex is your sole goal shouldn't be putting a pole in a hole <laughs> there's so much more <laughs> to it than that um so i'm gonna write source my textbook but i also really wanted to write a fiction fiction book um and it took me ages to work out what that was going to be about because I was worried that I didn't have the talent and that maybe I was all potential that was never going to be realised and so the book is all about being fearful of realising your potential and not knowing what to write about. The base sound very intriguing. Thanks! All that I'm hoping to achieve with writing this fiction novel is that I enjoy the process yeah. and that when I am finally on my deathbed Let's hope it's a sex bed as well, because it would be apt. Um, <laughs> Tied down. Yeah, in yeah. Some way, yeah, yeah. I hope that uh, I hope that I feel happy about that. 
Well, you're pretty unforgettable. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers, my dears. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Women of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, why not give us a rating and review? You know you want to. For more about the Women of the Future Awards, network and initiative, please visit www.womenofthefuture.co.uk. See you soon. Thank you.